Justin Carlson is the man from Ilkor. Each year, Ilkor puts out a series of PICOS, the Population Intervention Control Treatment Options, and really talks about, based on the best evidence out there, what's the recommendation? What can be recommended based on the evidence? Sometimes there's really good evidence. Sometimes there's not, and we have to make an expert opinion. But all of these come with treatment recommendations of how we can change care for patients. That was Justin Carlson, the National Director of Clinical Education at U.S. Acute Care Solutions. But more importantly, Justin is, of course, our man at ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. And this last November, just like each before it, ILCOR comes out with its much-anticipated guidelines based on a rigorous review of the evidence. These are used and quoted all over the world. Justin is going to give us the quick and dirty summary, the what and the why behind four important recent guidelines. The first is criteria for sending people to the cath lab after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The second examines the ideal rehydration solution for dehydrated patients. The third, the duration of cooling for burn victims. And the last, regarding the use of tourniquets in children. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Cath lab criteria. Question one. We, I think all are pretty comfortable with the concept that when we get someone back from arrest and they come in with an acute STEMI pattern on the ECG, those are candidates for immediate percutaneous coronary intervention. What about patients who don't have the classic STEMI pattern that have been resuscitated from out-of-hospital arrest? This is really one of those in-depth reviews that we have for 2021 for ILCOR. And And for those of us in emergency medicine, I mean, we know this. There are a number of causes of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, but acute coronary syndrome is by far and away the number one cause. And typically, our process in the emergency department from a disposition standpoint is to look at the EKG, and if there's a STEMI, activate the cath lab, move people in that direction. If there's not a STEMI on EKG, then there's some debate about, well, should they go? And if they do go, how quickly do they need to go to the angio suite? How quickly do they need to get PCI? Does it matter based on their initial rhythm? Was it shockable or non-shockable? And so all those play into our decision whether or not to send people to the cath lab. Right. And just to be explicit, what we're really looking for here is a complete coronary occlusion that led to the event, not so much an ECG pattern per se. Absolutely. Because if there's a blockage, we would want to open that, right? We want to regain perfusion of that myocardium. And for the folks who have a STEMI on ECG, about 80% of those are going to have an area that's amenable to PCI. Even of the non-STEMIs, about 30% of those will have an area that's amenable to PCI. So that's where the thought process behind, well, well, maybe we should get those people to the cath lab, even if they don't have a STEMI on initial ECG, that 30% of the time there may be something we can open and maybe some benefit that we can provide to the patient. Okay, so I know that there's a lot of registry studies and large case series that look at this. Which studies did ILCOR look at? Yeah, absolutely. So this has a number of studies uh, that were examined looking at this review. And I should say early was defined as within six hours. Delayed was anything beyond that. So we're talking about within the first couple of hours. doesn't have to be right the second the person hits the door, but within those first few hours, should they go or should they not? And then we're broken up into several subgroups. So STEMI on ECG, no clear signs of a STEMI on ECG, but maybe an initial shockable rhythm, and then kind of all comers, any initial rhythm, but no STEMI on ECG. 
So in kind of looking at those broad categories, there were a number of papers that were identified, over 5,000 actually initially in the citations that eventually got whittled down to about 44 studies that were included. Only a handful of these, though, were randomized controlled trials. So three of those were RCTs that are fairly new. In breaking these subgroups down and really looking at the data behind what we do, there really was not a lot of evidence to support early transfer to the angio suite for intervention, for PCI. Doesn't mean there's no benefit or no potential small subgroup, but when we look at individuals who do not have a STEMI on initial ECG, whether they had a shockable rhythm or non-shockable rhythm, there's really no difference in a number of outcomes between patients who went early or late. And those outcomes were, were things that we would want to know about from a clinician standpoint, right? Neurologically intact survival, survival to hospital discharge, all these different things that we would want a good outcome for our patient really were not different between early versus delayed PCI in these individuals. I think that's very helpful information for the clinician to have at the bedside. I don't think it should preclude sending patients to the cath lab that don't have a STEMI pattern. There might be a totality of circumstances around the case that lead you to that decision. But again, I think as a basic guidepost, it might help reduce the pressure, the march to the cath lab in some cases, and reduce the number of, let's call them, unfruitful cath lab activations. Take them to the cath Ideal rehydration solution for dehydrated patients. The next big topic that we're going to highlight is the dehydration rehydration issue. And this one is really, really cool because you compare all of my favorite beverages, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But uh, in seriousness, give us, give us a quick background on uh, you know, why, this is, why this is an issue, why you guys uh, chose to do it. Oh, absolutely. So there are a number of very strong opinions about what might be beneficial when someone is dehydrated, what fluids they may need to resuscitate. So you're, you're working a marathon, you're working at any kind of outdoor event, it's warm, people are getting dehydrated. What's the ideal kind of treatment for that? Water's the default, but there are a lot of other things that are, are advocated as potential options for treating individuals who have dehydration. When we went through these data, we identified several different categories relative to water. So carbohydrate electrolyte solutions, which are the 4 to 9%, that's your typical sports drink, things like Gatorade or uh, Powerade, those sorts of things. There are also lower carbohydrate electrolyte drinks, but we also looked at coconut water milk, so whether that's skim milk or cow's milk. And then even some alcoholic beverages and different places have proposed those as potential rehydration solutions, low alcohol, less than 4%, or regular alcohol beer, 4 to 5%. In total, we had 22 studies that were included from the initial 2,100 citations that we started to sift through. And the real kind of take-home point, again, because there were so many of these that were looked at and so many different comparisons, diving into all of them. Really, many of them did not show a tremendous difference from water, with the exception of the 4 to 9% carbohydrate electrolyte drinks. In those ones, there was a difference in volume rehydration status as identified by a number of different outcomes. So, in kind of summarizing all of that, all the different comparisons, the recommendation from Ilcor is really you can use any readily available rehydration drink or water for treating this. Any one of those looked at here would be okay, 
But in exertion-related dehydration, using a 4 to 9% carbohydrate electrolyte drink may be preferable. Duration of cooling for burn victims. So the next topic is very important. It has to do with the pre-hospital and initial treatment of burn injuries. So let's talk about that one. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a number of segments on MRAP talking about burns and burn victims and, and treatments for those. One of the things that is regularly mentioned and regularly pushed as a treatment is putting some type of cool water on thermal burns. And really, there's lots of different opinions about it. How long do we have to do it for? Do we even have to do it? Is there evidence to really support that? What's the mechanism behind that? And so we as Ilcor kind of took that challenge and said, all right, what is the optimal duration of cooling with water for thermal burns? And really looked into that, took a deep dive into what evidence might be out there for it. And so this was in adults and children. And really, we identified a couple of large, fairly large observational studies, four in total, enrolling almost 6,000 adults and children. Now, I should congratulate Mel on this. All were from Australia. Crikey. So they're, they're really kind of leading the world in this area. And in those, there were a couple of interesting findings, both on the adult side and the pediatric side. And we looked at a number of outcomes, right? So size of the burn, the depth of the burn, is there need for some intervention? So skin grafting, operative intervention, the number of individuals percent who got admitted to the hospital. And then all these were broken down by total body surface area, thickness of the initial burn, you know, second degree, third degree, those sorts of things, and really tried to parse out who benefits from cooling with running water. And if so, how long does that need to be carried on for? One of the largest studies that actually just recently came out in the Annals of Emergency Medicine was a study by Griffin et al. looking at over 2,000 children. And that showed that in a number of these outcomes, all of those were improved, meaning people needed less skin grafting. The size of the burn was smaller. The need for admission was lower in individuals who got cooling of their burns within the first few hours with water. And it looks like the odds ratio was... It looks like 0.6 with a range uh, from 0.4 to 0.8. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's nothing to sneeze at with that, with that N, right? Absolutely. So we have now large numbers showing a clear benefit of cooling with running water. And I should state, again, this is within the first three hours. So it may be that it's done on the scene. It may be that EMS does it. It may be that they arrive to us in the emergency department. But if it's within that time period, we can still affect their outcome with running water, with cooling these burns with running water. Although we did not find a clear timeline, a lot of societies have recommended at least 20 minutes. And some of the papers found, yes, cooling for at least 20 minutes does result in better outcomes. Not all of them universally found that. And so as we pooled the results together, there is not a clear timeline that 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes is the required amount. Tourniquets for PEDS patients. Now, the last thing we're going to cover is tourniquets and peats. And this is something that we've been talking about a lot. Kenji's become obsessed with it. So I think we've done about three pieces about this in the past three years. But anyway, basically, can we use the combat application tourniquet, the CAT, in kids? Great question. And there's so much discussion, predominantly because there's not a lot of literature. So again, a lot of opinions feeling very strongly one way or another, and we covered it last time, the 2020 ILCOR statement on hemorrhage control in adults, and now wanted to present 
the data for pediatrics and hemorrhage control there. Certainly, many of us know, I mean, trauma is a major cause of mortality throughout the world, and bleeding specifically is significant in a number of individuals affected by trauma. In the pre-hospital setting, where some of these interventions may be more amenable to, to treatment, such as hemorrhage control, hemorrhage actually contributes anywhere from a third to about half of all trauma cases. And although we have some data in adults, there's even less in kids. And as we've talked about in a number of other pediatric scenarios, our anxiety, our stress levels can be even higher. And so having a clear plan of how we want to address hemorrhage control in a pediatric patient is a key element to managing that trauma resuscitation. So in kind of evaluating this question, we identified 454 references, ultimately only ended up with two single-arm observational studies that give indirect evidence as to what type of hemorrhage control may be able to be used. Both of them were with the combat application tourniquet, and they used a surrogate for bleeding. What they did was they took children and applied the cat, the combat application tourniquet, applied that to an extremity, arm or leg, either the mid-bicep or mid-thigh, and looked to see if they could occlude a distal pulse. So they used a Doppler, look at flow essentially, but these were not individuals who truly had trauma. They were not actively hemorrhaging. This was a surrogate endpoint. What they did find was pretty interesting. In the upper extremities, they were able to occlude 71 out of 71 upper extremities, 100% occlusion of the pulse. In the lower extremities, it was still pretty good, but not 100%, 69 out of 73. So about 95% of the time, they could actually occlude the pulse with those. A few of the times, of those couple instances, they actually needed to decrease the pressure applied by the tourniquet because of pain. So this is not necessarily the strongest evidence, but does show us that the CAT tourniquet, the combat application tourniquet, can be used to occlude the pulse in pediatrics, both in the upper and lower extremities. It is important to note that the lowest diameter they went down to was actually in two-year-old children, which the minimum limb circumference had to be 13 centimeters, which you think, oh gosh, please don't make me do the math. But the, a 13 centimeter circumference is about four centimeter diameter. And so if you compare that to the diaphragm of your stethoscope, that's just a little bit smaller than kind of our average stethoscope diameter. Of the adult ones, not of the pediatric ones, right? That's a pretty important caveat. Of the adult one, yes. <laughs> yes. But, but that kind of gives you an idea if you're looking at a child and trying to guess, is this going to work? That diameter is going to be close to the smallest diameter that they used in this study. And what other options do you have when you're dealing with a six-month-old in that situation? Right. So these, the combat application tourniquet, like I said, goes down. They tested these as small as 13 centimeter circumference. Below that, direct pressure is going to be your best option because we don't have any evidence on tourniquets in those individuals. Summary. So quick summary of these four 2021 ILCOR guidelines that impact EMS and emergency medicine practice. First, out of hospital cardiac arrest, do we need to take patients that do not have a STEMI pattern immediately to the cath lab? The recommendation is no, no across the board early catheterization recommended for non-STEMIs after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Second guideline, patients that are dehydrated in a sports athletic setting, for example, 
the finding was that a 4 to 9% carbohydrate electrolyte drink seemed to have somewhat of an edge over water. Third, this is a pre-hospital recommendation for patients that have suffered burns. The recommendation there is for cold running water to be applied to the wound. We don't know the ideal time. 20 minutes has been bandied about, and certainly you can do it for too long, but certainly running water is recommended. And lastly, a new guideline on tourniquets in children says that you can indeed use the combat application tourniquet down to very young children. Once they get into the real infant ages, you have to still use compression, but we can use these cat tourniquets all the way down through most of the peds range. Thank you so much, Justin. We've provided links to the latest recommendations on the Ilcor website in the show notes. I think you picked some great guidelines to share with us this year, and I'm looking forward to the next one. And that's a wrap. Justin Carlson is the man from Ilcor.